Let me invite you to turn into to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Uh, you'll remember a couple weeks ago that we uh, started in this wonderful little book, and I'm excited to be able to explore it with you uh, this summer and, and going into the fall. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you're going to find that on page 986 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along there. You will be helped this morning to have God's Word open as we go verse by verse, as is our custom. And in fact, while you're uh, finding your way to 1 Thessalonians, I want to remind you, and it's very apparent in this book, that what we are reading is a letter from a, from a church planner, from a missionary, from an apostle to a church he dearly loves. And I, and I just want to keep that in the front of your mind, because I don't want you to think we're reading a, a blog article, you know, or, or some type of theological treatise. This is, this is a man pouring out his heart to a struggling church. And it might even be helpful to kind of imagine yourself what it would be like to be part of this Thessalonian church, perhaps one of the first churches in, in Europe. These, of course, are beleaguered Christians. They perhaps gather together in hiding. And could you imagine at one of those gatherings, an elder stands up and he says, we have a letter from Paul, Paul who brought you the gospel. Paul, who you haven't heard from for perhaps a year now. And imagine the encouragement that you might have received as we consider these words. In 1 Thessalonians, we'll begin about halfway through verse 5. Hear now the word of God. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now. We ask that you would come, and even the spirit that guided our brothers and sisters some 2,000 years ago, he would come and guide us today as well. That he might help us understand this truth, and in understanding and applying it to our lives, and in applying it to our lives that we might experience, as Jesus promised in John 15, the fullness of joy. So we seek joy in our God today through his word, and so we ask you to speak to us, please, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the uh, 1730s that John Wesley sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. And as I shared with you, I'm sure before, on board uh, were a number of German Christians. So a lot of English on this ship, but a handful of German Christians whom they called Moravians. Of, Of these German Christians, Wesley wrote, I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. Of their humility, they had given continual proof by performing those menial offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake. 
and for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts and their loving Savior had done more for them. And every day had given them occasion of showing of meekness, which no injury can move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away. But no complaint was found in their mouth. Well, it was during this voyage that Wesley, with these uh, rather starling and committed Christians, uh, these Moravians, German Moravians, would, would routinely have worship services on the main deck there, as they sailed that long voyage uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, I think from England to what we call Georgia. And uh, there, while they're having a church service, right in the middle of the reading of a psalm, a great storm suddenly arose out of the sea. And And it was at this time that Wesley, who himself was an ordained pastor, he recognized he was unprepared to die. But these Moravians... They showed no fear whatsoever. In fact, Wesley would write again, In the midst of the psalm wherewith the service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured between the decks, as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. The English were greatly terrified and screamed from fear, while the Moravians were unmoved and calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. And it is that courageous faith that made a massive impact on John Wesley's life, on his own heart. In fact, in in the middle of this event, he went and talked to some of the other um, passengers on the ship and pointed to the, the behavior of the Moravians. Wesley would write, from them I went to their crying, trembling neighbors. And pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. This was the, this is Wesley, this was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. So what accounted for this transformation? A, A spiritual revolution that it seems that Wesley was a stranger to. My brothers and sisters in Christ, it was adherence to the gospel. In fact, one last quote from Wesley, he would say, They were always cheerful themselves and in good humor with one another. They had put away all anger, strife, wrath, bitterness, clamor, and evil speaking. And he concludes, they adorned the gospel of our Lord in all things. These men, clearly, men and women and children, by the way, clearly adorned the gospel as they were committed to it. Of course, they're not the first to adorn the gospel by their lives. It's certainly true of this young church in Thessalonica. In fact, the church in Thessalonians, the passage we'll see today, is the only church in all the Bible where it is said they are an example to other churches. And how is this so? Well, you see there in verse 5, a passage we considered last, last time. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, right? The gospel created this church. And the gospel, just as the gospel creates all churches, right? 
And then once the gospel creates a church, the church then is entrusted with the gospel to do what? To spread the gospel in order to create more churches. And that's what we see here. They heard the gospel, they welcomed the gospel, they were changed by the gospel, and then they passed on the gospel. That's their pattern. That's the pattern in which God has given us that this is what we should expect to happen amongst this faith community we call Hamilton Baptist Church, that we exist because of the gospel as a church, and we exist for the sake of the gospel as a church, right? We exist by the gospel, we're sustained by the gospel, we're growing through the gospel, and we have been, my brothers and sisters, entrusted with the gospel. She says, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be entrusted with the gospel? What does that mean for our church? What does that mean for your life? Well, that's what this passage is all about. And may perhaps even in silent prayer in our own hearts, we, we would ask God, God, will you not do for Hamilton Baptist Church what you did for this church in Thessalonica? You see, first of all, they received the gospel. It all starts with receiving the gospel. You notice what we read here in verse 5. Paul says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and, and the Lord, right? And... Uh, for you received the word, here it is, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see what he says is, you have, what did they do? They received the word, right? Paul says, the word came and you received it. You received the gospel. Now, how did it come? Well, Paul says it came from us. You know what, what does it say in verse 5? You know what kind of man we proved to be among you, right? So the gospel is received through people. Right? People have to share the gospel. We have to tell people about the truth in which we hold dear. They know the gospel because Paul came and Paul invested in their life. Paul shared his life with him. Much of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is all about how Paul ministered among them. And this, by the way, is how most people will receive the gospel. Through people sharing, in, in, in the, uh, sharing the gospel as they share their lives with them. And this will be Paul's model. I appreciate what John MacArthur said. Most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon that they hear. And that's a preacher talking. They come to Christ because of an individual, because of the influence of an individual. In the overwhelming majority of new believers' testimonies, they tell us they came to Christ primarily because of the testimony of a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, a friend. There's no question, he concludes, that the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one at a time on an individual basis. And this is what we see. Paul and Timothy and Silas, they come, they bring their lives, they bring the gospel, they share that with these Thessalonians, and they received it, even though it cost them. It cost them. You see, the gospel is just not received through people. It's received in affliction. For what does he say there in verse 6, is it? He says, you receive the word in much affliction. The gospel doesn't come alone. The gospel almost always is followed closely behind by, by an unwanted companion called suffering. Persecution. Affliction. Pressure. And theirs came from the Jews of Thessalonica who were jealous because of the impact of the gospel, and they couldn't refute the truths of the gospel as it was expounded to them from Scripture. We saw this in Acts 17. So they sought to stamp out the fire of the gospel through mobs and arrests and extortion and accusations of insurrection. 
right? Death threats and all the rest. For us, affliction will come upon us, perhaps in a different guise, won't it? Right? It, it, might, it might come in the form of social rejection. It might come in the form of being mocked at and laughed at in high school. It might come in the form of a loss of a, of a relationship. It might come in the form of a loss of an economic opportunity. Right? But that, it will come. When, listen, when the gospel makes a home in our heart, it, it always arouses the enmity of those who live nearby. I appreciate the story that Max Stiles tells in one of his books on evangelism of a friend named John who regularly uh, travels to Kenya to preach in the high schools. And, and if you've ever been to Africa, many of us have been to Ghana now, if you go to um, places like Kenya, other places in Africa, and unlike America, people are very inclined to respond um, to preaching. And so John is, is there, and he's, uh, he's speaking to 200 students in a room designed to hold 30. And when he's done, he asks, asks for a response. And, and no one responded. And, and he, he's, he's a little bit embarrassed and quite a bit disappointed. And so he asked, asked a different way for, for people to respond and receive Christ. And, and no one responds. And so he tries a different tack the third time. And still no one stirred at all. There was none. And so the sermon's over. He walks out of the classroom. And there's seemingly no fruit from his message. And he, he goes off and he, he begins to grumble against God. Right? He says, God, I, I look like a fool up there. And I'm asking, I'm asking, and you're not bringing anybody forward. And, and why did I come all this way for nothing? And I had such great uh, expectation that you were going to do uh, a mighty work. And as he's whining to God, up walks uh, an African young man named Robert. He says, he walked up to him and says, hello, my name is Robert. And as soon as he said those words, his gaze falls to the dust at his feet. And he says in a quiet voice, what you talked about in there, I would like to have it. Okay, Robert, John said. And he went through the gospel proclamation. He told Robert how God created him in all things and that God is a holy and good God and we're accountable to live under God's rules. And yet every person in this world, you, me, Robert, John, we've all rebelled against God. The Bible calls that sin. And because God is good and just, he is going to punish sin. But also because God is loving and merciful, he sent a way for us to avoid punishment by sending his son into this world who lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for sinners and three days later rose from the dead that whoever believes in him, whoever repents of their sin and places their faith in King Jesus would be saved. Right? So he just walked through the gospel. God, man, Christ responds. And as he's walking through the gospel, Robert, right, uh, seems to be aware of it all. In fact, John says, Robert, you seem to know much about it, what it means to become a Christian. What's held you back from accepting Christ in the past? And at this, Robert once again looks down at the ground and begins to make circles in the dust with his foot as he says, my father has told me that if I become a Christian, he will beat me. Tonight, I will bleed for Jesus. And so have countless others. I mean, the gospel brings affliction. It's here, it was right there, right? Verse 6, affliction, much affliction. 
My question for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is will you suffer for Jesus as well? Will you, young people, will you, will you bow your head in prayer before you take an exam, just testifying that you belong to God? Will you, will you not laugh at the immorality that is prayed by? Older people, will you, will you, are you willing to take a stand for Christ, even if that will cost you an economic opportunity? Will you suffer? These Thessalonians, they suffered, but it didn't seem to deter them. In fact, I would suggest to suffer for Jesus and his gospel is probably a strong evidence that you have truly received the gospel, that it's genuine, especially when it's accompanied with joy. For you see, the gospel is just not received through people and in affliction. It's received with joy. For what does he say there at the end of verse 6? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So wherever the gospel goes, so does what? Outward opposition and simultaneously inward joy. Right? These both travel close behind the gospel. And now we think, of course, one precludes the other. Right? If there's joy, then there's no affliction. Or if there's affliction, then there's no joy. But we see right there, verse 6, no, 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 they have affliction and joy. And, and we, the reason why we don't understand that is because our joy is so often put into the circumstances of this world. It's put into an easy life and a comfortable life and all the rest. But what happens if the gospel, when it comes to us, what happens if it actually changes what we want? What if it happens if it changes our heart and our hope, and that rather than, than the new car and the, the, the prestigious job and, and all the rest, rather than being popular at school and be thought well of, what if instead we wanted to live close in the presence of Jesus? What if we wanted to walk in a way that honors our God? And that's what we longed for. That's what we hoped for. And if that's your hope, my friends, then your joy is unassailable. You you will have an indomitable joy that cannot be taken away when you're thrown in prison, as Paul and Silas were just one town over, can't be defeated when you lose a job, can't be threatened by an economic downturn or a troubling health report, because that's not where your joy is found, right? The, the, The joy that he's talking about is a joy that continues to sing when the storm rages and the ship lurches and it all feels like we're going down. It's a fruitful joy even in the desert, right? Because the joy draws its nourishments not from the happenings in our life, but from the forgiveness of sins, from the love of Christ, and the hope of eternal life. And this is the joy in which they're talking about. Do you have that joy? I love the story of the American prisoners in World War II in prison in Germany. And uh, these POWs secretly received word of the Allied victory three days before the Germans heard of it. And so during those three, those, those three days, their circumstances were no different. Right? They, they still suffered as POWs at the hands of enemy soldiers. But their, their attitude dramatically changed. Right? A wave of joy spread among these prisoners. Why? Because victory and liberation were assured. And so they could endure those last three days because they had hope. Well, I tell you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your victory is assured. Your liberation is guaranteed. Now it's becoming upon you to set your heart upon that, to long for that, to put your hope there. 
And then joy will be your guide along this weary road into your eternal freedom. You see, the Holy Spirit even comes to help us have this joy. He calls it what? The joy of the Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is the second reference to the Holy Spirit already in 1 Thessalonians. There, in verse 5, we read that the gospel came because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 6, we, we see the gospel is received in joy because of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit empowers you to receive the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit guides you once you have. He guides you into joy. It seems joy is the Holy Spirit's specialty, right? That is the, the fruit that he bears as he changes the longings of our heart. And of course, they saw this beautifully modeled in Paul, didn't they? You see, lastly, the gospel's received with examples. Examples. What does he say there at the beginning of verse 6? You became imitators of us and the Lord. So you want to know, where do they learn to fight for joy like this in the midst of trouble? Well, they saw it in Paul's life. They imitated Paul. And of course, Paul's just imitating Christ, who, as we know, for the joy set before him endured the cross. So this is Paul's plan. This is always Paul's plan. Paul continually writes about this. In fact, he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I'll follow Jesus. And then, and then the Thessalonians followed Paul. And, then what, and, and, and uh, they go on to imitate him. Right? They want to be like him. He says, you're imitators of me. Now, I, I think, to be honest, we all tend to imitate someone. There are often people that are elevated in our lives that we want to be like, and we think, I wish my life was more like that. I wish what she had, or I wish what he had. And, and, and there's a whole parade of them that are just constantly just walking before us. And th- this is what our culture says. These people are worthy of your imitation. They are worthy of your emulation. And they're usually what? Actors, right? And um, they're usually athletes, and they're, they're usually musicians, and for some uh, strange people, it's sometimes politicians they want to be like, okay? All right? and, and this is who we're supposed to be like. And, uh, and we think, well, if I be like them, then I'll have what they have, and the perfect life, and, and all the joy, and all the rest. But I'm, I'm telling you, do you ever, you ever look into their lives? He says, not, not, you've got to open the package to see what's inside, and it doesn't look like the wrapping. In fact, I appreciate the honesty of uh, none other than Tom Brady, who uh, uh, this is, these were comments after winning his third Super Bowl. I don't, he's got like 12 Super Bowl wins now. I don't know how many he's won, but after winning his third, earning millions and millions of dollars, right? The, the supermodel girlfriend, the fame, the household name. Listen to what he says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, I reach my goal, my dream, my life, and I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Right? Does that sound like a guide to joy to you? How much better for those who follow those who are following God? Right? That's the path that God has set up. In fact, the essence of discipleship is really imitation. 
that we actually become, people begin to imitate us, that is, we make them in disciples as we regularly share our lives with others. As they look at your life, consider the way of your life, and, 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 and they link, link lives together. Paul in chapter 2 will say, listen, we came to you, and we not only shared with you uh, the gospel, but we shared our lives, our souls, we are with you. And now they begin to follow the model that Paul has laid out for them. I wonder, my brother and my sister, if well, the reason you don't experience growth in in your Christian life, a greater sanctification and a closer intimacy with God is that you are not surrounding yourself within relationships with people who are growing. I wonder if you're just trying to do this all on your own and it's never God's intention that it can be done that way. Let me be an encouragement to you to form meaningful relationships with other Christians. Let me be an encouragement to you to get plugged into a community group where you can share life with one another that you might see how each other are following Christ that we might be that encouragement that we seek to be and to receive that encouragement. We need to seek people out. We need to spend time with those whom we respect You see, this is what happened here, and they received the gospel, which, of course, leads to step two, sharing the gospel. See, they not only received the gospel, and they didn't just terminate there, they went on to share the gospel. As you see in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what do we see? The imitators now are the imitated right? They follow the example of Paul, who's following the example of Christ, and now others are following their example. Others in Macedonia, which would be northern Greece, and Achaia, which would be southern Greece. This seems to be a wonderful little church that is imitated everywhere. And I just think about this church, that this church that's an example to others, and I'm reminded, of course, as you are, I hope, that the God who did this in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago is the same God that we're talking about today. He hasn't changed. The same God we're worshiping today. And don't you think that uh, what he did there, he could do here? I mean, should that not be our heart's desire, that that Hamilton Baptist Church would might even become an example to the other believers in Loudoun County? Uh, Not not so that we could pat ourselves on the back and be filled with pride for it would be something that God would do, but just out of a great longing to be used by God in a powerful way. In in fact, I want you to understand, by the way, that the example there in verse 7 is not the example of individual Christians, but it is an example of the church community. That you will see something in the community of believers that you cannot find in isolated Christians. And of course, we could could spend all day talking about what that looks like. But may I just uh, read to you briefly from a, a very ancient letter called the Epistle to Diognetus. It was written about 80 years after 1 Thessalonians in the year 130 A.D. And listen to his description of this Christian community. In fact, he could have, for all we know, been talking about the Thessalonian Christians. He says, Christians, he's trying to say, what are are Christians like? Okay, this is year 130. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. They, They do not inhabit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a, a life marked out by any curiosity. In other words, you don't recognize Christians by the funny accent or they, they all wear pointy hats or whatever it is, right? Uh, they, 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 no, they're, they're everywhere and they look just like us and they live wherever we live. And yet, he goes on, listen, they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They live, but they do so as those who are passing through. As citizens, they participate with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. 
They share a common table, but not a common bed. They love all men, but are condemned by all men. They are put to death, they are poor, they lack everything, but overflow with everything. They are dishonored, they are spoken ill of, they are reviled, they are insulted, and repay the insult with respect. They do good, but are punished as evildoers, and when they are punished, they rejoice as if they are going to be raised from the dead. That's the church in 130. Don't you you want that to be, what a witness that is, right? Does that reflect anything of our own life as we live together? I hope it does, and I hope it continues to grow. In fact, part of that witness is a verbal proclamation of the truth of the gospel. That's what we see there in verse 8, do we not? For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul says, okay, a couple things are happening here. One, the word is sounding forth. Literally, it's ringing, it's peeling, it's booming. This is the same verb used to describe the play of a trumpet. Their verbal witness to Christ is loud, right? And it is echoing through the hills and valleys of Greece. It is trumpeting through the cities and hamlets of this ancient land. This church that received the gospel is spreading the gospel. And my friends, this is God's plan for evangelism. We don't need to come up with all sorts of different programs and plans and all the rest. God's plan is for a community of people to receive the gospel and then for that community of people to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you talking about Jesus at all with those who do not believe him? That is your entrustment. That is your stewardship. And maybe, maybe that you would, you would even today pray, God, will you give me an opportunity this week to share my story? God, will you give me the courage to ask a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, hey, have you ever thought about reading the Bible? Would, would, you, would you like to read the Bible with me? Right? Maybe, maybe tonight you would lie down tonight and you would just simply begin by saying, God, I want to be used by you. I want to bear fruit. Will you send me across the street or across the hallway or across the sea? Maybe tomorrow you go into work and they say, how was is, how is your weekend? How was your weekend, right? And rather than saying, oh, yeah, the weather was great or, you know, you know I watched the game or I mowed the lawn or whatever, you know, you know I, I picked my nose. I don't know. Whatever you did, okay, right? All right. Whatever, whatever in-name things we talk about. What if you said, man, my weekend was incredible. You know what we did? What we considered a first-century community of people living in ancient Greece and how their lives were transformed, and they transformed all of Greece itself. Maybe you would say, you know, it was interesting. I, I spent some time talking to my spouse about how we can have joy in the midst of suffering. And how those two come together if we change the things in which we long for. Maybe you would, you would talk a little bit about what God is doing in your life, right? And, and, and maybe God might use that to open a door. You might use that to say, someone say, listen, you're strange and I don't want to talk to you anymore, okay? And that might be the case, but we need to suffer for Christ. We need to be a little bit courageous for Christ. Are you doing anything for Jesus that requires courage? Have you gone over to your neighbor recently? Knocked on the door? just for a visit, and all the while praying, God, will you let me be able to testify to Jesus? That's why you're there. Did you see that? That's why you work there. That's why you go to school there. You've been entrusted with the gospel. 
just as these Thessalonians believers did. So you see the word uh, trumpeted forth, but look on there in verse 8. It's just not the word, but their faith as well. What do you say? But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So the word's gone forth and their faith, their, their commitment and devotion to Jesus. So they're witnessing to the gospel with words and it's being backed up by a godly life, which the scripture calls their faith. And it, and it trans, is transforming Greece at this time, just like it transformed Wesley. In fact, Wesley was so impacted by the witness and the peace and the joy of these Moravians, he concluded, let me quote him, he concluded, I concluded what I least expected, that I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. And it seems like this news of the Thessalonians is spreading all over. It seems like everybody's saying, have you, have you heard about so-and-so? Right, have you heard about this, these people down in Thessalonica? They're totally different. And all of a sudden, they're getting together. And, and you know what? There's Jews and Gentiles. They're getting together. We've never seen anything like it. There's, there's, there's rich and they're poor. They're coming together. There's free people and slave people. They're coming together. We've never seen a community of people. And they're all equal footing, right? There's not a hierarchy there. They're all coming together. And they call each other brothers and sisters. And have you seen the way she's treating her husband? It's just totally different than she used to. Have you seen the joy that they have in in affliction, right? They've never seen anything like it. Paul says everyone is talking about it. Something amazing has happened there in Thessalonica, and more and more people are taking notice. In fact, Paul says, listen, you're making my job unnecessary. What does he say there at the end of verse 8? So we need not say anything. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us uh, the kind of reception we had among you. It's like everybody's talking about it. Everybody. I pray that, listen, we need to look like what we are talking about. We need to embody something different. So we take the gospel and we pass it on, but we pass it on as those who have been transformed by it, which is what you see lastly happening in this church. They receive the gospel, they share the gospel, and they were transformed by the gospel. You say, how are they transformed? Paul seems to explain three different ways. Beginning in verse 9, we read, uh, You had turned to God from idols, which is number one. Number two, to serve the living and true God. And number three, to wait for his son from heaven. So you, look, the, you see a decisive break with idols, an active service to God, and a patient waiting for Christ. Or we might say, you turn you serve, and you wait. Turn, serve, and wait. Another way to look at this is past, present, and future. Right? They left the idols of, of the past. Now they experience the present joy and freedom in serving as they expectantly look to the future. So Christianity involves all aspects of our life. Or, or you might even notice here that great Christian triad, faith, hope, and love, which we've already noted earlier in this book. Is, is not turning from idols an act of faith? And is not serving the living God an act of love and is not waiting for Christ to come the essence of hope. And so let's just briefly consider uh, these three transformations that took place and ask God, do we see it in our own lives? You see, first of all, they turned. He says there in verse 9, you turned to God from idols. I think this is a powerful picture of conversion. Listen, let's be clear. Becoming a Christian requires a break with your former life. The Bible calls that repentance. That repentance might look different in your life and in my life, but everyone must repent. And I, I just want to emphasize this for a moment because I often hear 
in our day what I would consider a truncated gospel. And to be honest, I quite often hear it on Christian radio. And it goes something like, God loves everyone just the way you are. And Jesus died so that you would know how much he loves you. And now you need to believe that you're loved. You need to accept that you're accepted. And, and, and all that's fine and wonderful. And, I, and I, in some ways, I would agree with all of that. But my question is, what about repentance? What about repentance? Would it not be better to say God loves us? Yes, there is no doubt. But he is not happy with the way in which we live. Right? In fact, the way in which we live is so offensive to God that Jesus had to die in order to pay its penalty. And yet God loves us so much that Jesus was willing to do so and then rose from the dead. And therefore, whoever would repent of the sins in which they commit and surrender their life and faith to King Jesus would be saved. I want you to understand to be a Christian is to repent. It is to turn from idols. Repentance is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And by the way, this was really radical for them. This is no small request to say turn from idols. Because if you go, if you go to Thessalonica today, stand in the harbor and look to the southwest, you will see a mountain rising out of the sea. That is none other than Mount Olympus. The tallest mountain in all of Greece. And of course the home to all their silly gods, right? Zeus and Aphrodite and Ares and all the rest. And so these Christians are literally, literally living under the shadow of idolatry. And what a powerful hold that must have had on their hearts. And by the way, it it didn't end thousands of years ago. It is happening all over this world. A handful uh, um, of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was on a mission in Azerbaijan, which is a country directly north of Iran. And, And there in Azerbaijan, every home, as you enter a home, um, above the door is a broken teapot attached to the house. And that broken teapot is to ward off what they call in Azerbaijan the evil eye. And is also to protect you from curses that your family members and your, your enemies might put upon you. And so every door, everyone had, had a teapot in order to protect us. See, this, there's this bondage even throughout the world. And beyond that, by, beyond the fear and the bondage that idols play, they give you a sense of identity. Your allegiance to idols give you a sense of your community. It's who you are. And so to demand people to convert to Christ is, is to turn from idols is, is really to change your identity. Right? It's a radical change. And, you know, we, we've seen it in Ghana, haven't we? As I shared with you in the past, a handful of years ago, I baptized a man who was brought to faith by our church plant there in Ensuam, Hope Community Baptist Church, who was a witch doctor, or they, what they would call a fetish priest. In fact, it, this was not a, the career of his choice. This is his father's career, and this was his grandfather's career, and on it goes. And so this is what he did for a living. He was a, a, a pagan, idol-worshiping priest. And this, and this man was converted to Christ, and he literally, not figuratively, literally picked up his idols with his hands and took them outside and destroyed them. And in destroying his idols, he's destroying, by the way, his source of living. And how did this man come to fight faith in Christ? Well, he's converted, by the way, not initially through a verbal proclamation of the gospel, but from the loving community that he saw in Hope Community Baptist Church. 
when they ministered and cared for his, his uh, teenage daughter th- through a terrible sickness. They, they paid her medical bills, though she wasn't a member of the church. They brought her to church. They took her home from church. They loved her, walked with her through this. And watching this from afar, this man and his wife had come to believe in Christ. And now there was some of the most vocal evangelists for Jesus there in Ansalom. And to use the language of the Thessalonians, we might say that this man has gone from, from uh, uh, their, that their faith has gone out, right? And the word of the Lord has sounded out. And this is what's happening throughout the world. But I'm afraid, even as I think it was Pastor Josh who alluded to already, that, that we too must turn from idols. Right? This is not just something that happens in Azerbaijan and Ghana and uh, first century Thessalonica. So you and I, we don't have teapots over our doors, our trust, and we don't visit the shrines to Athena or offer sacrifices to Aphrodite. But do we not worship these idols nonetheless? I think Tim Keller is so helpful in his wonderful little book, Counterfeit Gods, when he says, We too have our shrines, whether office towers, gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, and money, and achievement, but the same things, right, the same things the Thessalonians worship, um, that have assumed mythic proportion in our lives and in our society. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. I think he's spot on right here. We've made idols of money and jobs. and We've made idols of sex and power. We've made idols of sports and leisure. And their hold on us is, is no less great and significant than it was on the Thessalonians. They give our life security and meaning. We invest our time and our money in them. They occupy our minds and our dreams. We face the very same temptations. And just like them long ago, we too must repent and continue to repent. So not the great Martin Luther as he nailed that paper upon that castle door, beginning with the words, all the Christian life is one of repentance. We must continually be fighting against the idols that seem to not want to stay dead in our lives. You say, how do we do this? How do we break free? Well, we, the only one way I know of is to turn to one more powerful. To turn from what is dead to what is living. To turn from what is false to what is true. To turn to what Paul says here in verse 9, the living and true God. My question is, have you? Have you? Have you, have you repented? Have you turned to God in faith? If you have, you will find that your life is increasingly defined by service and waiting. Loving service, hopeful waiting. That's not what we see there in verse 9. Look at the end. He says, he says to serve the living and true God and, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven. So service and wait. That's, that's really the activity of the Christian life. This, this serving and waiting. There's got to be a balance there. I appreciate what John Stott says in Christian terms Serving is getting busy for Christ on earth while waiting is looking for Christ to come from heaven. Yet the two are not incompatible, he writes. On the contrary, each balances the other. Although we must look expectantly for the coming of Christ, we have no liberty to wait in idleness with arms folded and eyes closed, indifferent to the needs of the world around us. 
And so the Christians are, as after we have turned, we are to serve. To serve what is he called the living and true God. We'll be brief here. Our time is almost up. But I just want to once again uh, beat the drum that I like to beat every month or so. That the, the, the idea that God exists to make your dreams come true and that God exists to fix your life. And if you come to Jesus, everything is roses and sunshine and skipping in the meadow is utter nonsense. And it's not found in the Bible. Instead, rather than coming to Christ and you think, okay, I'll keep doing everything I want to do and God will just smooth the path. You are instead called into a life of service. A life of ministry. And that service and ministry, by the way, has little to do with your comfort. Just ask the Apostle Paul if you'd like. And so perhaps we we would stop wondering what God can do for us and start seeking what God wants to do through us. That we would serve, even when it's hard, even when it's something we might not want to do, because that is what Christ has shown us. This is what God has called us to. And uh, and let me just ask this question, a little diagnosis question for my own heart as well. How many of you have said no to service when it is requested of you? Not because you prayerfully concluded that this is not what God wants for you, but because it's inconvenient. It's because you don't want to. And I just want to remind you that when Christ calls you, he calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's the Christian life. It's a life of service. So we turn, we serve, and then lastly, with this we'll conclude, we wait. He says there in verse 10, to wait for his son. You say, why, why, why are we waiting? What does that do for us? Right? Well, to wait for Jesus gives perspective on your life. You need to consider your life and the decisions you make and the things which you live for in light of Christ's return. Which is why Paul seems in this very short letter to the the Thessalonians, in a very brief time, maybe he was with them for three weeks, maybe a, a month, he seems to have repeatedly taught them about the return of Christ. So I already mentioned to you in each of the five chapters he references or teaches on the return of Christ. When he gets around to his second letter, the main theme in 2 Thessalonians is the return of Christ. So evidently this was hugely important in Paul's mind, and he very much wanted them to live in light of Christ's return and their eternal future with him. And so he says you have to wait for Jesus, wait for the Son. My question for you, my brothers and sisters, are you, are you waiting for Jesus? And in what way are you doing so? And this might be just a wonderful 10-minute conversation over lunch today as you look at each other and say, okay, hey, let's think about the the, the actual implications of Jesus' return upon our present life. In which way is Jesus' return actually impacting how we live? Is it? And you talk about that. That might be a wonderful way to kind of discover, is this truth have a strong impact in your life? Maybe you might even spend some time, why don't you redeem about 15 minutes this afternoon? You just get alone and say, God, okay, I just want to list out the things in my life that is different because I'm waiting for Jesus. How is he changing my perspective, we might ask? I've heard that you ought to visit a cemetery. You ever heard this advice? Visit a cemetery before you make any major decisions. Right? 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 Why? Because it will be remind, you'll be reminded life is short, eternity is long, and you'll be given perspective. Perspective. But you'll also be given power, right? Waiting for Jesus might just give you power over the idols in your life. It was John Calvin who said, unless we are stirred up to the hope of eternal life, the world will quickly draw us to itself. 
For as it is only confidence in the divine goodness that induces us to serve God, so it is only the expectation of the final redemption that keeps us from giving way. He concludes saying, Let everyone, therefore, that would persevere in a course of a holy life apply his whole mind to an expectation of Christ's coming. And I wonder what power over sin might we have if we more intentionally applied our minds to the return of Jesus. What different priorities, what different goals, what different hopes and ambitions might take root. Because our culture says, listen, grab it now. Go get it. Go grab it. Take it. Hold on. Go and get Go and get is what we're constantly told. And yet our faith comes and whispers into our heart, my friend, you need to wait for your final joy. You need to wait for the worries and pains of this life to be defeated. You need to wait for salvation to be completed. You need to wait for God's name to be vindicated. Or in the language of Thessalonians, you need to wait for the Son. Wait for the Son. It is interesting to note, at least in my mind, that we are not told to wait for eternal life. We're not told to wait for heaven. What is it? We are to wait for the Son. Who's the Son? I'll just read on. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May I just note once again, and perhaps this is only important to me, but uh, I'm so sick and tired of the nonsense that is out there with the Da Vinci Code and all the rest, and that Christianity is some collaborated scheme, and they all came up with a trinity around the third century and the divinity of Jesus around that time. This letter is written 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. You can't get, you hardly get earlier. You see the high, divinely exalted view of Jesus. You see the Trinity all over. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, the Spirit guides the Christian life. Verse 9, God the, God the Father is the one we turn to. Verse 10, God the Son is the one we wait for. So we see this, these truths already a hold of the Christian uh, community very early into Christianity. And he says, okay, what? We're waiting for, for the Son. And then he goes on to describe him, doesn't he? The Son did what? He died, right? And he was raised. And because Jesus was raised, we know two things are true. One, God has begun to renew creation, reversing the curse, a, begin, a, a beginning that he will bring to completion. And the second thing that we know in the resurrection of Jesus is that God has accepted his sacrifice. God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay for my sin and for the sins of all who would believe in him, which is why, as Paul writes, we will be saved from what? The wrath to come. The wrath to come. The Bible tells us, you see there clearly, that wrath is coming, and yet some will be saved from it, some will be rescued from it, some will be delivered from it. My question that I leave with you today is will he save you? Will he save you? Have you turned from idols to the living God? You know, John Wesley was discovered by the testimony, both verbal and, and witnessed, of these Moravians that he was not a believer, and yet uh, he didn't sit on that. As soon as he got back to London, he sought out these very same Moravians. He found them in a Bible study. And within minutes of their Bible study, and studying uh, Luther's commentary on the book of Romans, no, no less, Wesley would say these words, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. 
Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. Has he taken your sins? He will do so only by faith. May you trust in him. Our Father, we are thankful for this wonderful church and the example it is to us and the work that you have done in them. I pray that you do that here in the individual's life and in us as a a community of faith that we too would not only wholeheartedly receive the gospel, that we would be committed to sharing the gospel. I think this is a church that rejoices in the gospel, but I I question how much we rejoice in sharing it with non-believers. This is a weakness in my own heart, Perhaps it's a weakness in this church. And I pray, dear God, that you would enable us, both by our life and by our verbal testimony, to seek out opportunities to talk about Jesus. And even as we do, we would do so because he has transformed us. May he increasingly do so, changing our lives. And may he do that in the life of one or two or maybe even more here who have not yet put their faith in him. May you not, even as you did in John Wesley's life some 300 years ago, will you not strangely warm their heart that they might trust in Jesus. And they too will be saved from the wrath to come. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.